I think that we have been marginalized to the point where we believe so deeply that in order to succeed, we have to change everything about ourselves. Mm-hmm. We don't. Hello, everybody, and welcome to B Squared C, a podcast celebrating the stories of women of color in the corporate world. I am your host, Nancy, and I hope everyone is safe and sane wherever you're listening to this from. Buckle up for a long episode because, listen, I want you to hear every word this woman has to say. I usually record lots of content so I can play around with it, but for our guest this month, Lucy Suzani, I really could not think of what to take out because every single minute of this conversation was just that tasteful. Busi Zizani is South African by heritage and is now an executive in inclusion and diversity living in Amsterdam. But before all that, she was giving her classmates the business on inclusion. As um, a nine-year-old black kid attending a previously racially segregated school in post-apartheid South Africa. At such a young age, she knew her presence was a superpower and stepped into this purpose valiantly and has never looked back. Busi took this energy to being one of the few black women doing live sports broadcasting in South Africa and she even has produced her own film. Amongst the things we talked about, we talked about finding your purpose, the importance of asking the right questions, and what inclusion as part of the DNA of the company actually means. Above all, Busi gave us the download on what is it to step into your power and how to keep showing up like this throughout your life. Don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it from and be that amazing friend and colleague who shares good things with the people in your life. I promise you, they will love you for it. Without further ado, here is Busi's story. All right, let's go, Busi. Hi. Hello. How are you, Nancy? You're looking lovely today. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> For someone in a pandemic, you're looking amazing. <laughs> What's your well, secret? What's your secret? <laughs> uh, well-being, just taking care of yourself. Um, you know, just do all the basics. Sleep well, drink water, uh-huh. and, uh, get outside. <laughs> okay. I always say mine is like drink, drink my water and mind my black business. <laughs> That's <laughs> myself. Clear boundaries. I'm all about the the boundaries of uh, where you start and yeah. <laughs> good. I hear you. I completely hear you on that. Well, welcome to B Squared C. It's really cool to be here, um, and really such a great initiative. So uh, I was really excited when you invited me. I am so excited to have you. I had listened. I told you when we was introduced yourself, but I had listened to your you talk at and on another podcast, and I was just like, she's so awesome. I want to talk to her. So, in fact, I want to be friends with her. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Good to hear. <laughs> awesome. All right, let's get into your story first. 
Can you introduce yourself to our audience with like three stories, experiences or anecdotes that define you? I can. I kind of have a really interesting, I think, like kind of background. So maybe I'll I'll rewind back to something that connects mm. to my broader why. Okay. Uh, why I particularly do this work, but also why I am the way I am. Nine years old, um, living in post-apartheid South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, I was one of the first Black kids to be in previously racially segregated schools. Okay. So I was one of those, like, I think in my class, I was the only one. Mm-hmm. In grade, it was like one of three Black people That's in the a- entire school. That's incredible. Is there pictures of you doing this? There are school pictures. Oh, <laughs> I can't rows wait. Rows and rows and rows. Of white That's amazing. Girls. And then you just have this one black kid over there. <laughs> there she is. Often with not the best lighting, right? Mm, of um, course. Of course. Lighting. The lighting is not yeah. made for us. Though. <laughs> I actually grew up thinking I was really, really dark skinned. And, and not really understanding where I kind of fit in the spectrum. <laughs> but anyway, um, so nine years old, I think, you know, I was in this type of school and mm-hmm. I remember hanging out with friends at mm-hmm. lunchtime and sitting there, you know, kids would share their uh, lunches. You know, you open your lunchbox and you're kind of like, you know, offer people whatever's on your lunchbox. right. I was like, mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. You know, that's a really nice uh, way to share. I'm new to the school. I sort of open my lunchbox and kind mm-hmm. of share around as well. So when I noticed my lunchbox looks different, oh. <laughs> <from the people laughs> lunchboxes. Uh, but you know, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. I give the lunchbox to a girl next to me. Her name was Cindy, and she picks something from my on my uh, lunchbox and says, oh, Busi, thank you. You're so nice. Like, you're one of the nice Blacks. You're one of the nice Blacks. Right. <laughs> and it threw me off. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. What does that even mean? Okay, right? this is nine-year-old. Nine-year-old, nine right? <laughs> what are all the other Blacks? <laughs> but I think what she wasn't ready for is that, you know, is my response. Mm-hmm. Because I grew up in a family that was highly political. My parents had been part of the struggle and the movement uh, for a long time. I was pretty aware of mm-hmm. what was going on politically in our country, probably beyond a normal nine-year-old's. Right, right. So even though the statement took me back, mm-hmm. I still responded very quickly and very sharply with, oh, sure, yeah. You're also one of the nice whites. <gasps> oh, no. And her face went red. I'm sure it did. <laughs> right? She didn't understand what that meant. But I didn't stop there. <laughs> I continued. I said, not like the other whites. <laughs> wow. You were the ones. And proceeded to break down the history of racial segregation to her in my own nine-year-old language. What transpired after that <laughs> was that I got... I went to the principal's office. Oh, my okay. <laughs> I, you know, I was very much in trouble mm-hmm. for what I had done. But my mom was like, what did she say that was wrong? Wow. I love What's that. accurate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the mm-hmm. sentence that she said. <laughs> and also sort of, this was a reaction mm-hmm. to something that was said to her. And I think what we need here is to do some better educating. 
Mm-hmm. And I realized that even in a country where racial segregation is so evident, is so mm-hmm. prominent, and I think for Black people, the experience is still very much, you know, lived out even to this day. And this is right. like 30 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, the understanding of systems, mm-hmm. understanding of true history was completely disparate in terms of what black people knew and understood about what apartheid was and what white people understood about what apartheid was. And it was really interesting to be living in the same country, literally streets away from each other and to be having such fundamentally different life experiences, fundamentally different access to information or even understanding the information so differently. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And for me, it was so important that I kind of knew that at such an early age and knew that my presence in the spaces that I was about to have access to right. was going to be an opportunity to educate, that I was going to have to share my story, my experiences, uh, because very often the people that I'm meeting with and talking to and working with mm-hmm. uh, would have had a fundamentally different experience from me. And to learn that at nine, I think, was you know, paradigm shifting for me. Right. Um, and I therefore became really, really um, sort of grounded in this idea of being authentic and being mm-hmm. my full self because actually no one else is going to bring this perspective. Right. Um, that even if we're neighbors, mm-hmm. my experience is unique and valuable and you need to know it in order to for us to work together to collaborate together to be friends Mm -hmm. Um, you know Mm -hmm. so that was so like interesting to experience that at such a at such a young age and even though that's not what I called it then I didn't obviously call it a paradigm shift but it certainly was and it informed how I showed up in the world moving forward Um, I was against assimilation Mm -hmm. I wanted to stand out you know, I live in Amsterdam where everybody wears black, navy, white, and gray, and I wear my bright colors and have hey. my hair out. And I <laughs> fully express myself the way I want. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is what you get. You always yeah. get the real me, always, because no one else is going to give you this perspective. I love that. I am, again, we do not share the videos of this, <laughs> of this recording, but I am looking at you in awe right now. I am like, what a deep, deep place, right? To find or to 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 come to find a purpose from, right? And what a very meaningful experience to have at such a young age and the ability to express yourself that young. That's amazing. I have so many follow-up questions <laughs> about all of that, about your family and you know, this is and how they've influenced you. I think that's that's so interesting. Thank you for sharing that story. Sure. I love it. I love it. So the, you say this has now led you to, to the career path that you're on right now. So let's, let's get into your career arc. So you started at nine. <laughs> now, no. <laughs> Not quite that early in terms of my career. <laughs> Becoming the person that you are now. How I, and I know that you are also an unconventional, I think I describe you as unconventional corporate <laughs> person. Like your presence in the corporate world is quite unconventional because I know the rest of the story, but let's tell everybody else how you got to where you are right now. Right. So I 
I studied electrical engineering straight after school and mm. it wasn't really my choice. You know, I was one of four children, single parent, South mm-hmm. African, like I said. And so education is incredibly expensive in South Africa and is not um, mm-hmm. funded by the government, particularly um, higher education. And so I were, I relied on a scholarship in order to mm-hmm. go to university. I happened to be good at math and science. It was not really my core interest. I was much mm-hmm. more into the creative space. I loved debating. Um, you know, I was on the team, debate team and public speaking, drama, choir. That was more my vibe and where mm-hmm. I kind of uh, sort of loved to be. But I happened to, to be good at math and science. So I studied electrical engineering. After that, I decided to study theology okay uh, interested in <clears throat> the 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 value system of religion okay. um, and religions around the world and um i i loved ancient languages so my theology i studied greek i studied hebrew and but neither one of these things really uh, kind of allowed me to fully express myself creatively mm-hmm. and so while i was at uh, university now doing my second degree theology a friend of mine called me up and said hey there's this tv show that they're auditioning for and i think you'd be great uh, come you know doing presenting work so that right. i got introduced to the world of television okay and uh, actually that became my career for the next uh, 10 years Amazing. I worked as a presenter, as a producer. Um, I did live sports broadcasts and cricket, particularly um, mm-hmm. in South Africa, and which was another very interesting experience, <laughs> given that it is a very male and a very white sport right. <laughs> in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly from a production standpoint, there were very few you know, people of color represented, particularly in leadership positions. Right. And I worked my way up to executive producer within cricket and really loved the space. I worked for a company that did a, a lot of sports broadcasts. Um, and finally, we got the deal to do the 2010 FIFA World Cup. Mm-hmm. And that felt like a really great way to end my career in sports broadcast. I then went into filmmaking. I made a film. I was checking my calendar today, actually. Yeah. The podcast is going to be shared later. But today, in 2015, my movie was released in South Africa. Oh, that's amazing. So, yeah. so Happy anniversary. <laughs> Thank you. It's a kind of anniversary, exactly. And once I'd made the film, it really does kind of close off I think it's a pinnacle of a producer's sort of career journey Mm -hmm. and for me I didn't really know what I wanted to do next but I had I really wanted to participate actively in the economy and like create jobs and and all those good things Mm -hmm. and so working as an independent consultant uh, really working with uh, young producers uh, helping them craft their their commercial plans, which was something that I had been doing at Octagon and Endemol and other companies, I really felt like I was contributing, but it wasn't moving the needle in terms of job creation in the way that I wanted to. Right. And I didn't really know how to pivot from that until I got a call from Uber. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, we have this position. It's kind of business development. It's kind of marketing. It's a bit of stuff. We're mm-hmm. not sure, <laughs> but this is who we are. And we think you'd be a great fit for the organization. I met with them. And my question was around actually the employment opportunities that they were able to create. Right. I wanted to hear more about that. I said, well, you know, how are you actually uh, helping 
entrepreneurship sort of accelerate in the country and have people have real uh, job opportunities. Right. And they told me how many driver partners, which was literally hundreds per day that they were onboarding Mm -hmm. at the time. And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I had used the app myself. I Mm -hmm. understood the power of mobility. And as a South African, particularly the power of access to connect Mm. people. Right. And that you could be in the middle of Soweto and request an Uber and get to Santon in no time. Right. Uh, the barrier to entry for, as a, a driver partner, you know, a lot of people own cars in South Africa. Or you can mm-hmm. borrow a friend's car and you can drive. I really loved that. Mm-hmm. That you could get started within minutes. Um, you didn't need, you know, years of education or a piece of paper that said you were accredited. You needed a driver's license, a vehicle mm-hmm. and an ID. <laughs> like go to, go for it. Right. And I thought that was awesome. I love the mission that the organization had. Um, and it was very ambitious at the time. Um, and in some ways, uh, it really needed a localized lens because the mission right. at the time was transportation as reliable as running water. <laughs> <laughs> so we're launching that in Cape wow. Town. <laughs> You're like, mm. in Cape Town. <laughs> No way. You know you are. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So I saw an opportunity to really kind of bring in like a perspective uh, that was really needed in making sure that this, um, this product was relevant to people. So mm-hmm. I, I actually joined Uber at that time. Um, this was now over six years ago. So it was very much in the early stages um, of the organization. And very quickly, I was, of course, struck by the lack of representation within the mm-hmm. day one actually I was like right. what's happening here <laughs> we're in the middle of South Africa like what <laughs> and I wanted to make sure that I did my part to make a difference right. because if we were to appeal to a diverse audience that and understand our customers better be customer obsessed as we said mm-hmm. we were we needed to reflect the communities in which we served so from day one I was doing work uh, really around diversity and inclusion it's something I had seen in cricket you know that lack of representation mm-hmm. it's something that I'd also seen how diverse teams outperformed homogenous teams in right. real- Mm-hmm. And the business outcomes that were linked to that. And so very early on, I was that person sort of challenging the status quo, uh, really making sure that we were sourcing correctly, sourcing from um, more diverse channels, rethinking um, how we hired who we hired, why we hired them, where. And over the next six years, I was part of a massive culture shift in the organization. Right. Where I eventually moved full time into diversity and inclusion work Mm -hmm. um, and culture change work. And uh, today I am at Deliveroo as a first global head of diversity and inclusion, uh, really setting a company that that has recently gone public up for a future that is just becoming more and more diverse, uh, Mm -hmm. right? And really making sure that they're set up with the right foundations and the right framework to leverage that diversity and make sure that we innovate at the pace that's required. So that's my very I love it. Story. <laughs> I love it. There are so many lessons already that I can uh, pick up from your story. I do want to ask you, so looking at your, just the career arc of it, from studying engineering theology to going into filmmaking <laughs> and now ending up where you are right now, what are some of your sort of guiding principles to 
yeah, step step into the different opportunities that you have that you have that you have stepped into because it is quite unconventional, right? A lot of us are raised with like you study something and that's your life yeah. <laughs> for the rest. Like your whole life is about optimizing that path, but you didn't do that. So what what have been your your guiding principles as you kind of navigated yourself in these different spaces? Yeah, it's a great question. I think my number one guiding principle in life is to embrace change. And what I mean by embracing change is not accepting change, but to participate in the change mm-hmm. actively. So I've always had a bit of an instinct for what's next. What's mm-hmm. the wave? Uh, what are the things that, what, whether that's within an industry, so within within filmmaking, within, I was mm-hmm. like, this is the next thing. We need stories that are uh, authentic. We need to hear more of the female voice. And I wanted to be part of a story that did just that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when I was working in cricket, we innovated so much in terms of how we presented uh, the players. You know, we did things like meeting them in their homes, understanding and connecting with the fact that people want to know more about not just the guy hitting the ball, mm-hmm. but how they live who their friends are, um, where they went to school, how they actually experience their partner, their family life. And so I think it's like really embracing change for me is like, is very, very important. And you need to participate in it is what I say, is what I say all the time. So it's not about doing the thing everybody's doing today. It's about doing the thing that's next. And that often means people look at you crazy. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But I'm immune to that. <laughs> I don't care how people. <laughs> I I really don't. And I think it is again like going back to being a kid. Like right, you used to being weird and different, and like right. looking different from everybody. Having it, so whatever. Like right, like your side eyes don't bother me. <laughs> yes. um, and so I really much kind of go go for that for that wave diversity and inclusion work. We, we haven't at least in South Africa we didn't call it that. No. Right. It was transformation or, um, you know, BEE and things yes. like that. It was very much compliance driven. Uh-huh. I was like, this is about culture. This is about the humanity of our organizations way back then. Right. And now that's the wave. Right. So yes. participate in the change. That's my first guiding principle. The second one is take a risk. Take a risk. Just freaking jump. <laughs> In so many ways, I have fallen flat on my face mm-hmm. at taking a, taking risks or trying something different uh, or going in a totally different direction. But what people don't understand about falling is how to fall forward. Right. Right. Because when you're jumping, even if you fall, you're going forward. That right. means you're further than where you were before. Right. Um, that means you're moving the needle a little further. So even if you're making mistakes, you're at least trying something different. You're at least right. doing something that's slightly unorthodox and, and, and something different. And more importantly, you're showing other people that like, oh, there's a soft place to land here that I just fall. <laughs> yeah. You're falling flat on your face, but right. you're mm-hmm. other people that actually, if mm-hmm. they jump and they jump correctly, they jump better, right? right. They might land in a much more better, in a better position than you did, but at least they know the solid ground where you are. Right. So taking risk and really being willing to be the first in things is something that I take with me all the time. I'm not much about, I look back 
mm-hmm. very little. Okay. <laughs> um, I look back for the purposes of learning mm-hmm. and to make myself better, to check my rate of growth over time. Um, and I compare myself to myself. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, how was I doing this last year? I'm doing it better this year. I'm good. Okay. It's not about how everybody else is doing. So, and that leads to the third one. Instead of, I'm all about creating a new lane. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that in in, in how we're brought up, we're brought up to climb the ladders that already exist. Right. Right. To navigate the spaces that we were not allowed to be in. And now we are. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Actually, I don't like the old space. Yeah. I want my own space. I'm going to create my own space. I'm going to create my own space. And Mm -hmm. that may mean creating opportunity. That may mean making up a job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know how many managers have said, I want to do this. (laughs) This is the opportunity I see in the business. I don't think that my current role has much scope beyond the next six to 12 months. So I'm going to create a new role and we're going to call it this. And here's the work that I'm going to do and the impact I'm going to have in the business. So create a new lane and suddenly you create like a whole other function, a Mm -hmm. whole other team, a whole Mm -hmm. other space for other people to play in as well. I love it. I love it. And I think it connects really well to something else I captured as you were talking is about how you ask critical questions of a job when you were starting the Uber job, right? (laughs) And you ask them very critical questions. I think what we've talked about on this podcast before with other guests, right, is how challenging that can be, particularly for, for women of color. This concept of um, standing out and, and authenticity and yeah, and how it can impact your, your career, right? And, and how people look at you. So what are your sort of thoughts on that or best practices around that? I, it may sound like I came in through the door like a bull. <laughs> it may even have felt that way. For yes. Because often your presence in a new, in a space that hasn't, pre, that hasn't previously had people like you with your lived experiences and perspective, you feel disruptive. Your presence. Your presence itself is disruptive. <laughs> yes, I hear you. It's like, I'm just here. I haven't even started <laughs> asking the critical questions. <laughs> I got that feedback recently, actually, in like a 360 feedback at work. The executive coach said that I scored the highest he's ever seen of all the managers that he has trained. And I was just like, look at me (laughs) before I even open my mouth. Right. (laughs) So I think this is don't don't underestimate the power of that. Mm -hmm. The power of your presence, right? right, is really disruptive. I would never advise anyone walk into a new organization or a new company or a new job and day one, they're just like, all right, let's <laughs> disrupt systems. Get up. <laughs> like, hey, let's talk, let's talk about it. <laughs> inclusion. Uh, especially if it's not your job title. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> That's not. Remember that often your presence one is already the disruptor. Mm-hmm. The second thing is don't conform. You hear because you are different. Right. are the difference that can make a difference. Mm -hmm. So I I see a lot of young people contort themselves into something that they're not. 
in order to fit into the new the new culture and actually you've been hired here precisely because you're because you're different precisely mm-hmm. because your perspective is is different and unique mm-hmm. so yes understand the power of your presence so like actually own the space fully right. be present in the space take every meeting go to don't shrink from uh, any opportunity to have visibility hey Lucy would you like to go and do an introduction in the t- in the company team meeting and at the back of your mind you might think oh yeah they're asking me because mm-hmm. right but i take that opportunity i take, take that space i'm like mm-hmm. i'm going to fully be present because mm-hmm. that alone can be disruptive secondly i think what's important to do is again like stay authentic when you are asked your opinion when you are asked your perspective when you're coming in to do the the work that you're doing mm-hmm. right bring your own unique experience right. into 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 the into the work and it's often really refreshing it's not been heard before and mm-hmm. um, people actually tend to be curious to dig in more to understand more and to start to help you find more more opportunities to share that unique perspective because they don't really get it from anywhere else right uh, many times i've had leaders two three four levels above me reach out and say hey i heard you have i heard you have a very different view of this particular thing that we this particular mm-hmm. thing we're rolling out you're the only divergent view i heard that you shared that view and i want to hear more about it because right. dead to say the thing that's different right and then i think the last piece is you have to also make sure that you are asking critical questions right um, which is what you you said to trigger the thinking you don't have to be the one that changes everything mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. or that you know you you don't have to be one that does does it right i often say no i'm here to ask the questions right <laughs> the doing is up to you <laughs> right? the doing is up to you that's a lot of our work in dei right a lot mm-hmm. of people have a misconception that we're here to tell you what's wrong with you mm-hmm. and then we're here to fix you and i'm like no i'm here to ask you questions mm-hmm. and then you can decide which elements of your culture you want to change and then i'll support you in doing that what goal you want to go after you decide the goal right right that's a goal the, the company decides the goal not the di expert or the practitioner mm. we support you in getting there we support you in communicating that story and that message mm-hmm. so ask the question and sometimes the questions are really simple the question can be why do we do it this way right right it's something that they've been doing they and they've never bothered to take a pause and ask why why mm-hmm. have we tried a new way how did how did it work when you tried something different right so it's not the radical things um, and people think they need to be social justice warriors in the workplace in order to make a difference and i yeah. say be present make your presence visible and felt mm-hmm. ask questions I love it. <laughs> I'm going to say I love it everything you say. <laughs> I hope it's FYI. <laughs> I'm sitting here being You can feel free to also say I don't love life. it. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. So, let's talk about shifting from corporate South Africa to corporate Netherlands. Uh so the subject of the season here is really about navigating corporate Netherlands. Um and a lot of our listeners are definitely looking for that inf- advice and for experiences, right, to know what uh what that is like. So um, what have been maybe some of the differences for you in your move from corporate South Africa to corporate Netherlands? 
There's been a lot of uh, shifts that I've had to make. Okay. And I think it goes beyond the Netherlands. I think it's about Europe in general. Okay. When I moved to the Netherlands, I moved into our corporate headquarters mm-hmm. for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Okay. But without a doubt, the office feels very European. I think if you had to count the heads, there's probably a pretty good representation of other, of, of Middle East. And, but from a culture perspective, it's a very European culture. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mixed mm-hmm. in with American, given that the organization is American. Uh, mm-hmm. At least this is when I moved six years, uh, four years ago now in, in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And so I think there was one, uh, the shift for me of, again, being a minority. Mm-hmm. I had had the minority experience my whole life, right? We right. talked about this, right? And I think for most millennials in South Africa, right, you're kind of the first in your family to do a lot of things, to right. have access to a lot of things if you, mm-hmm. are, if you are a person of color. But you live in a space and in a country where you are represented. Mm-hmm. Like you walk it down the street and people look like you. Yes. Um, there's nothing odd about your dress and your, like you, you kind of fit in. Right. You may be underrepresented in the boardroom and the decision-making table, but yeah, outside of the cafeteria to eat, it's people that look like you. Right. And that's quite shocking for um, someone who's lived, you sort of been the majority minority in some ways. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even realize that that was a thing. I never knew that like that interesting have an impact on me, but it did. And you 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 search for community and belonging in a mm-hmm. different way. You know, I would walk down to the cafeteria to eat and I would see like a new black employee and I'm like dying to just go to them and say, <laughs> Hey sis. <laughs> it's like that would be weird, Lucy. Right, right. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> Right. I think that was like really, really interesting. And and linked to that is race is on the table in South mm-hmm. Africa. You know, mm-hmm. we talk about our blackness very openly. Whereas in Europe, this is still a very taboo and very sensitive subject. Right. I remember in one of the very first trainings that I did, which was called Why Diversity Matters, mm-hmm. I introduced myself as black. Mm. I'm Boosie, I'm black, I'm Tosa. <laughs> <laughs> like I shared all these things. <laughs> Right. And I got feedback afterwards from someone said, did you have to say that? Right. It's a little confronting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like, isn't mm-hmm. it? Because it's on my face. <laughs> Look <laughs> at me. Confronting. <laughs> and to understand where they were at, and particularly the type of work that I was doing, mm-hmm. I really needed to deeply understand the environment that I was operating in. And and the value system that was being held here and the sensitivities um, within Europe around the subject that was so comfortable for me. But mm-hmm. in order to be effective in the work, I have to meet people where they are. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I think the, the other sort of ad- adaptations are kind of uh, normal ones that mm-hmm. most people, you know, speaking English all day long is exhausting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> For me anyway, uh, not having that reprieve to sort of hear your own language and talk to mm-hmm. people in your own language at the end of the day and not knowing where I'm going to get my hair done. And it's like, all I have to do, all I do now is wear head wraps, like what's happening in Amsterdam? You know, mm-hmm. there's no 4C hair here. Like that's not a thing, right? So now you have to go to the outskirts of the city or I have to take a train and go to Paris to the Congolese sister. Right. (laughs) 
me. <laughs> but I think when you when you're transition in a, in a corporate organization, you know, there's the corporate culture that you kind of have to learn and understand. But mm-hmm. there's the corporate context, which mm-hmm. that's the part that I had not really understood. I think the culture I understood from because I started in the same organization in South Africa and I was shifting to the same organization again, just based mm-hmm. out of Europe. But the context of that organization was very different given that you know we are we are in the Netherlands so uh, that was really different and then the last thing I will say is there is a historical relationship between the Netherlands and South Africa which is right and and I didn't expect myself to be so sort of emotionally charged by that and it's everywhere It, it was interesting you know you kind of you see names street names mm. that resonate it's like transvaal and that's a <laughs> right like, right 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 right, right. And, and for for our listeners to know the historical relationship we're talking about right is apartheid correct correct <laughs> um even before then it's jan van riebeck right <laughs> it's 1652 mm-hmm. i now live in a building that was owned by the dutch east indian company 300 years ago and and all of that sort of confronting you and kind of being surface to your to your consciousness because it's obviously been always there but to mm-hmm. front of mind uh to everything i felt like i was overreacting to everything because i hadn't quite dealt with the undercurrent right right i hadn't prepared for that emotional undercurrent when i went to do my driver's license yeah. um, here i had a head wrap just like this Mm-hmm. And the photos I gave them was me with braids. Right. Which I had had like just a few weeks before. Which right. The pictures. And they wouldn't let me because they wouldn't let me have the driver's license. It's like, we'll have to take a different picture because you don't look the same. What? What? I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> have but- they made black girls like <laughs> at the airport? They always look at my passport and they go like, <laughs> are you the same? I'm like, well, I don't have that hairstyle now. I won't have it probably for another little while and it will never look exactly the same. Right. Why is it that my white South African counterparts who had moved to this country who also changed their hair and not having the same experience (laughs) with their driver's license, but I am. Mm -hmm. And so for me, everything was like just coming to the surface and my reaction was huge. It was probably an outsized reaction uh, to a civil servant. <laughs> who, from what I understand, or just doing their job, the history, right? Uh, but uh, I would. That's how for me it was less about sort of corporate moving from one corporate uh, culture to another to another. It was this this context, the context, that specific relationship between South Africa and the Netherlands that. I just hadn't spent enough time thinking about and everything was kind of hitting me hard. I had to tell my friends, I'm like, you need to be my accountability partners. Mm -hmm. You need to tell me when I say something is about race, check me if it's not because yeah. I'm always going to go there especially right. in the Netherlands especially I'm going to go there mm-hmm. wow that is so interesting so I think that when I moved here as well one of the things I didn't internalize that I would encounter right was white South Africans so there, there's so many of them <laughs> they're everywhere yep. they're all the white Africans at work right yeah and I must say it's been very challenging for me right. <laughs> to connect with them because they you show up and then there's this big sense of like oh my African sister or 
something like that, right? Then over time, you get into conversations and you're just like, and it triggers me back to the beginning of your conversation, right? Where my current perception is just that they just have a very different reality. They live in a very different reality than, than like, you know, what black people live in, right? Their version of what happened in South Africa is like not at all our version, <laughs> I have I have South Af- white South African friends who found out about this the black South African experience by reading Trevor Noah's book Born a Crime. And you're like it's mind-boggling. Yeah. That book came out 5 years ago. Mm. <laughs> and you're from there, you live there. How is that? But this it's this understanding that I had had earlier on in my life and I kind of so I kind of expected that when I encountered someone that wasn't a black South African I cannot assume shared experience right no no and they cannot assume shared experiences with me either they should not either yes wow thank you for sharing that so then that brings me to your company the inclusion company and already you have shared sentiments of what's so important about context, first of all. That's one. And some of the work that you're already doing in, in your current company. Mm-hmm. So tell us more about the inclusion company and the ambitions you have with it. Awesome. The inclusion company is the brainchild of myself and my co-founder, Rashi. She's mm-hmm. uh, actually a DEI practitioner herself uh, for a massive French company called Ubisoft. Mm-hmm. Um, now, And the two of us, she's of Indian origin. And we were both sort of separately doing work back home Mm -hmm. as we were learning and kind of working through the diversity and inclusion space and realizing that in our respective countries, this work was kind of new. Right. Um, And so we were doing, we were coaching, we were training, uh, we were mentoring particularly young young startups and scale-ups mm-hmm. and it was a way for us to expand our impact beyond the organizations that we worked for mm-hmm. which are sort mm-hmm. of these big multinational organizations we realized very early on that actually this idea of an inclusive culture and sort of hardwiring inclusion into an organization should be happening at a much earlier stage right so that three-person startup should be having a conversation around diversity and inclusion Mm -hmm. don't wait until there's three thousand people because the trading effect of the culture that you build as a three-person founding team has massive implications for those three thousand employees so if you're not being intentional about it you're going to make mistakes we had both been part of transformation work (laughs) cleaning up a mess that probably wasn't necessary or some of it wasn't necessary. So the inclusion company is really about this idea of supporting scale-ups and startups. So Mm -hmm. they build inclusion ground up and for us personally connects to our individual values systems and about equity in general Mm -hmm. and equal Mm -hmm. access to opportunity. And more recently, we've started working with venture capitalists. Um, So VCs are now saying, hey, could you help us in how do we think about who to fund and why we right? How do we ensure that our dollars that we're going to spend on these companies, some of it is actually allocated to this work because there is actually a massive risk in ignoring this work until the organization is too big. So that's what we do at the inclusion company. Uh, We do it alongside our day jobs um, because Mm -hmm. 
you know, culture change in a 20,000 person organization is a very different process. Right. And startups and scale-ups compare themselves to Google and Facebook and Mm -hmm. uh, these massive companies. And I have to always tell them, it's like, you don't have a $200,000. No. No, so that's the thing. You're making you're <laughs> so, making inclusion ideas accessible, right? Making inclusion really accessible, really simple at that founding stage. At the um, founding stage, will make a huge difference uh, in, yes. in the ecosystem we have in the world moving forward. And I, I captured something you said when we were prepping for this. You said you are encoding inclusion into the DNA of the company. I love that so much. It stayed with me to the point of I started thinking about my own organizations that I am building as a CEO entrepreneur. Uh, so B squared C is one, but there's also the one I run inside my, my company right now. Mm-hmm. And thinking that while they are both big ideas around inclusion, I actually still need to have an inclusion strategy. Uh, it's such a great question because a lot of um, underrepresented minorities within specific industries start companies and they say, well, we you know we are black owned, therefore mm-hmm. we don't have to worry about diversity and inclusion. Mm. <laughs> we are female owned, therefore we don't have to worry about diversity. Yes. Um, and I think it starts with the individual. When you take a step back, systems of racism and discrimination are so deeply connected with our societies, with how we grew up, with our own socializing, mm-hmm. that we forget that we've been affected by them. Right. So, yes, you're a female. You're a Black female starting this business, this organization. But your mindset can still operate from stereotypes. It can still mm-hmm. operate from that mindset because you have grown up and an environment that perpetuates these stereotypes everywhere. Right. Not unscathed and unaffected by them. Your belief system, some of these things go deep to belief. Mm-hmm. Your beliefs about yourself have been formed largely by your social context. Right. So if I'm saying the social context is toxic, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, that you've grown <laughs> up in, you've got blind spots that you didn't even know. So your identity can be a really important, uh, just exploring your identity mm-hmm. further than just like, hey, why do I think that way? You know, what has affected me in that way? Simple questions like that really to build your own cultural competence can be a really effective way that an organization that is led by minority groups can really start to think about it. So think about building your individual competence. The second thing is we are asking organizations to shift to a space where they create more safety for more divergent views to Mm -hmm. be at the table. You should be doing the same. Mm -hmm. So at your decision-making table, do you have the perspective of white men? That is a very good question. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) If you don't, how do you get it? Do you Mm -hmm. think about caregiver status, disability status, all of these various dimensions of our identity that inform our lived experiences and inform our unique uh, worldview? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think one is bringing in those ideas or at least a way to get input right like go speak to a different set of cult of customers or customers that don't look like you um, have build a network of other professionals that may have very different experiences uh, to you expose yourself to mm-hmm. more ideas share your strategy with someone who's different to mm-hmm. you and ask for their input in a very very uh, intentional way 
I think that's super important. And because uh, the work that we do, it is partly to elevate the voice of the underrepresented and to mm-hmm. amplify it. But diversity is all of us. Right. It's all of us. White men are part of the conversation. White women are part of the conversation. They have to be because then it's, it's not diversity. Mm-hmm. Then, then it's just these very specific groups that are underrepresented. And so I think like for me, just those two things can make a very big difference, um, you know, in how you in how you kind of move forward. There's a lot more things that are of simple course. and easy to do that you can uh, you can try. But individual competence, how do I navigate difference? Mm-hmm. What's my cultural point of view? How has it been informed? Understanding that and you can do that through coaching, you know, and really working through your identity in a more intersectional way, like you said. And then two, seek divergent views. Seek deliberately. Divergent view. Mm-hmm. Deliberately. Mm-hmm. Whose voice is not, do we not have? Whose perspective is missing uh, or right. do we not have access to? Okay, let's find ways to get it. Thank you for that advice. <laughs> Furiously writing it down. Yes, uh, and awesome. I think that I'm going to be needing a consultation with the inclusion company. <laughs> We're happy to help. We're happy to help. Zin as well. We'll see. Thank you so much for this incredibly insightful conversation. So inspiring in many ways. What three words would you describe yourself with? Hmm. Three words to describe Musi. I think it speaks to my guiding principles. I feel like I've been brought into the world to make a difference. So mm-hmm. I would say I'm a change maker. Change maker. I'm a risk taker. <laughs> yes, I've seen that. I'm willing, I'm willing to go the distance to make that change happen. And then I think the third one is... I'm hilarious. <laughs> you are. This is true. <laughs> I don't take myself too seriously. Um, so, right. You know, I, I like to have fun. So Yeah. No, I love that. Um, another question. What book have you, that you read in the, whenever you read it, that has had a huge impact on you? Can you share a book that has had, that has stayed with you and why? Two books, one when I was maybe 12 or 13 and one recently. The Prophet by Khalil Gibran changed my life in so many ways. There's a particular poem there called The Archer in that book that talks about um, the the archer being the universe, God, whatever whatever the higher power you believe in. Your parents being the bow and you being the arrow. And what directs the path of the arrow is not the bow, but it is the archer. And it really connected with me. And in terms of, I love my family. I want to make my family proud and happy, but to find my own sense of identity and purpose, I have Mm -hmm. to connect to the higher power. I have to let that direct my path. Mm -hmm. And so I speak mostly from a point of view of purpose and to me, that's super, super important in everything that I do. It's the number one question I ask myself when I'm evaluating a job. Does this align mm-hmm. with my purpose? Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in my 20s, I defined my purpose for myself uh, to make sure that that becomes the guiding principle. The second book is more recent and it's probably much more boring for most people, but it's connected to uh, the work that I do. It's called Humanocracy. Okay. And it's about bringing the humanity back to our organizations. It takes a step back and looks at how organizations have evolved over time. And it was just machines. 
treating human beings like machines you're mm-hmm. on a conveyor belt it's factory think about industrialization yeah and how our organizations haven't evolved beyond that we still want our people to deliver first and foremost right um right, right? we care mm-hmm. little in my opinion about who they are and so a lot of times when I introduce myself to new people I'm like who I am is more important than what I do most right of yeah, so I share a lot about who I am. I want to know when I connect with new colleagues and leaders that I work with who they are first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And that will help me support them, coach them, manage them if they might direct reports much better than uh, I would if I just know what they do, what they can do and not do. So that's for me has been hugely, humanocracy. I love those, 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 those book ideas. Well, see, it's been such a pleasure um to connect with you let's close with just like two or three pieces of advice for other women of color out there in the corporate world you are the superpower we've been missing in our corporate organizations please stop trying to be anything but you ah just you being you uh with your boldness with your resilience is exactly what our organizations need Um, I think that we have been marginalized to the point where we believe so deeply that in order to succeed, we have to change everything about ourselves. Mm -hmm. We don't. The real you is much more powerful, much more impactful, much more desperately needed than the fake somebody else. For those of you who are stepping into your power, thank you. Yeah. Making a difference. Like yourself, Nancy creating a platform like this and helping us to celebrate ourselves for who we are, fully who we are, is all the difference in the world to make us more confident and to stand stronger. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you so much. I'm going to let you have your day back. I mean, this conversation is just going to be feeding me for days. <laughs> oh, I hope I hope it will feed everybody as well. And uh, I, Absolutely, when we get it out there. But we'll see. Thank you so much. Thank you for the work you're doing and for being so inspirational. And just, yeah, we're friends now. Just FYI. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That's it for me this week. Thanks to my wonderful guest, Busi, for sharing a story uh, on B Squared C. I mean, I told you, I told you, right? Talk about a badass. I would love, love, love to hear what resonated with you from our conversation. Come over to the B Squared C Instagram and LinkedIn page and um, let me know. If you like what you heard, go ahead and give this podcast five stars wherever you listen to it from. Don't forget to share it with your network. You can also make a small donation to help keep this podcast going. Buy me a coffee with the link in the show notes. I will be back um, in two weeks time of this month with a reflection. Some of the things that Lucy and I talked about. Until then, I am your host, Nancy. Be safe, be empowered, and stay inspired.